Welcome to Mortgage Space. My name is Alan Medeiros, your host, and today we have the fortunate opportunity to sit down with a CPA and a good friend of mine, Darren Williams with Hawking Denton Palmquist. Darren, we really appreciate the time that you've taken out of your busy schedule to talk to us about taxes and tax law changes that may affect listeners of this podcast. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about your background. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, my background started in real estate. I was in real estate for about seven years. And then in 2011, I, I jumped over to the accounting field, got my CPA license in 2013, and then I uh, have been practicing ever since. Excellent. Do you have a particular field of practice that you specialize in? Uh, yeah, our specialization is uh, business tax. So we do tax planning, uh, you know, tax returns from partnerships, corporations. Uh, we work with individuals as well. Uh, everything in regards to the tax planning side of it. Do you do also the personal side for individuals that are doing their business taxes with you? For sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, within a county C firm, I know they have different varieties. I mean, very small one person, uh, as you call it, the mom and pop shops, really, that just do returns. Others that do additional services, including bookkeeping, accountancy, uh, perhaps payroll and other things. Does your firm offer things like that? Yeah, we do. We, uh, we're we a medium-sized firm. We got four offices, Bakersfield, Delano, Visalia, and Los Altos. But we do uh, you know, bookkeeping. We do payroll. We do uh, reviewed financial statements. Uh, we actually do some business consulting as well. So... Uh, we're pretty all-around firm. Sure. One of the things I've noticed since uh, we've met is that you really are always looking for ways to help the consumer and the business owner to understand how to, number one, reduce taxation, number two, to maximize uh, their earnings, and then lastly, how to plan properly for the future. One of the things that I've learned through that process is that things are very dynamic. They're always changing in the tax world. Am I wrong? No, for sure. You, you're right. So in 2017 to 2018, we had some pretty pretty good sized changes that affect the individual taxpayer as well as families and potentially businesses. Correct. On this particular podcast, I like to focus on individuals and families. Okay. So can you tell me kind of what the major changes were that you notice as a CPA between 2017 and 2018? Some of the big changes is uh, you'll see people probably itemizing less in 2000 with the 2018 tax year. Um, the old standard deduction for married filing jointly was at twelve thousand. Uh, that's now going to jump up to twenty-four thousand for a married couple. Um, so what that means basically, if you own a house, your mortgage interest, your property taxes, your state taxes, uh, DMV fees, uh, donations—if all those things don't add up to more than twenty-four thousand uh, dollars, the likelihood of you being able to itemize is going to go away. You just take the standard standard deduction. Another big change will be the tax rates; those are going to change uh, or have changed for the 2018 tax year. Um, and then also, you'll see a nice benefit with the new child tax credit. It's going from fourteen hundred bucks to two thousand dollars as a uh, as a tax credit per child per child okay yeah now one of the things that you just discussed was the itemization and there's been this kind of big push in the mortgage industry for the longest time is that you buy a house for tax benefits and I've been somewhat reticent to saying that is a good idea because you should not buy a house just for purely tax benefits because there are certain people that don't fall into categories they can even itemize. Correct. So one of the things that I always advise clients is when you're purchasing a home, you're doing so because number one, it's a home. 
Right. Number two, you're purchasing an opportunity to build, number one, equity over time. Mm-hmm. But two, building equity through paying that principal down Correct. through amortization. And eventually having something that has some value to it. When I look at real estate and I look at taxes, there are two things that typically come into my, I guess, viewing window. One is, is if you sell a property and you take out that equity rather than rolling it into another property. Uh, what is that called when you do that? When you roll it into another property? When you don't roll it into a property. When you don't? It's just a, it's a capital gain sale. Uh, but the nice thing though is if it's your personal residence and you live there for the last couple years, you can sell that property and married couple, they can exclude gain up to $500,000. So basically, if they profited $500,000 on that house, there's no tax consequence for them at all. And is that a lifetime, or is it just for one particular property that they occupied as a primary residence? No, each time. So they can they can have one primary residence, sell that, 10 years down the road, sell another one, and they still get to exclude it. Good. Now, we're not going to cover in this particular podcast investment properties, but we'll address that later. Okay. When you look at tax brackets, what are the... I guess the most common tax brackets that we're going to probably encounter for the average person in Kern County, because we've looked at earnings anywhere from zero dollars to about one hundred and eighty thousand okay. as a family. So, what does that look like with regards to tax brackets in federal for twenty eighteen? The new rates uh, for both brackets will see roughly about a three percent decrease for both those. Uh, just to kind of give an example, in two thousand seventeen, the tax bracket from Eighteen thousand six fifty one, all the way up to seventy five thousand nine hundred, was in the fifteen percent category. If we look at the two thousand eighteen through two thousand twenty five tax bracket, uh, that same classification numbers are slightly different, but you're going from nineteen thousand fifty one, all the way up to seventy seven thousand four hundred, is in the twelve percent bracket now. So that's a three percent decrease. Um, and also you're seeing a slight uh, increase in income range there too. So that top bracket under the old rules was just under 76000 Now it's jumping up to 77400 and that's for a married filing joint couple. You also look at the next tax bracket that you talked about there, and so that's going to take us from 77401 all the way up to 165000 New tax bracket for 2018, you're at 22% as your top bracket. Um, under the old rules, it went from 75901 all the way to 153000 and that was at 25%. So both of the tax brackets that are common for Kern County will see a, a decrease, I think, overall in their taxes. In your opinion, does it make sense for someone to consider changing their withholdings, considering the tax bracket might be less? It's going to depend on a case-by-case basis. It's going to really depend on what their tax return looks like. Uh, You have some individuals that are W-2 that don't have a lot of uh, deductions. Um, So with that in mind, the the new tax law will probably help them because they're going to go from the old standard deduction to almost double in, in 2018. Uh, so that will definitely benefit them. Uh, but you have other families that you know have a high mortgage interest, have high property taxes. Um, they wrote off a lot of business expenses on their on their personal uh, tax return as unreimbursed expenses. The unreimbursed employee expenses goes away in 2018. 
So that can affect a tax return different from maybe somebody else that's in the same exact income range, but they just don't have those business expenses. Another thing to kind of think about is in February of this year, 2018, uh, the federal government made changes to the W-4. So the withholding brackets for payroll is now different. A lot of Americans probably saw um, less federal taxes being withheld from their paycheck. So if you take that into account, plus maybe someone losing out on all the unreimbursed employee expenses, at the end of the year, they might have to pay a liability, you know, they might have a tax liability. So it really comes case to case and really talking to your CPA and, and planning that out. Now, there are a lot of people that do not use CPAs. Mm -hmm. Individual tax filers generally find it easier to do taxes online, or they go to an H&R Block or some other type of, as I would say, um, franchised kind of concept. What would be the benefit of working with a CPA or a tax professional like yourself? For us, I mean, if you if you want to compare it to H&R Block or something, our prices really are not more expensive than H&R Block. Uh, Sometimes I've actually seen tax returns come across my desk that are at, we, we, our fees are actually lower. Um, but the benefit is you have CPAs that are required to do CPE, continuing education, every year. So we stay up to date. Uh, we're here all year long. You can always get a hold of us. And then plus, we're looking at more than just the tax return. You know, our goal here is not just to file your tax return once a year. We want to see you throughout the year. We want to help you build that foundation to uh, one, help we can strategize, but then also help you to build that wealth, um, which I think all Americans are you know, looking forward to. Now, in some instances, people are filing a Schedule C versus you know, a W-2 wage earner. Right. Or they have a combination where one spouse or uh, partner has a W-2 and the other person has a 1099 or independent Correct. contractor income. In those instances, would you be able to advise on perhaps what changes may need to be done as far as withholdings to maybe offset 1099 earnings or potentially paying quarterlies if they earn enough income through the business side? For sure. Okay. And especially, excuse me, with the new rules coming uh, under the uh, Tax Cut Acts, um, individuals that do file a Schedule C will see a, a decent benefit come 2018. Uh, there's a new deduction depending on your income limits and wages that are paid out, but you can take a 20% deduction right off the top uh, under the new rules. Um, there are some you know, formulas and planning that go into that. But. Are there any particular industries that you're aware of that this particularly benefits? Specifically, let's give an example, a real estate agent who mm -hmm. receives all the income through 1099. Right. Would they benefit from this new tax setup? Uh, the majority of them will, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, you and I have had this conversation, you know, offline regarding 2106 expenses, and mm -hmm. there are certain industries that are somewhat, what they call statutory right. or exempt. I'm not sure what the differences are, and I'm not clear on those exact terms. So, so there's a, I, I don't have all the, the guidelines in front of me, but there is a, a strict category or categories that the IRS classifies those employees as. So the benefit to them is that they receive W-2 income, the employer is paying for part of their Social Security and Medicare, but the one benefit is they now get to take all their business expenses and put it on a Schedule C. So with the new tax law, that's still okay. You take that same employee that's not allowed to do that, uh, for instance, uh, 
a mortgage loan officer. You guys aren't in that classification. So you guys have business expenses. That has to go on a 2106 under miscellaneous deductions on your Schedule A. 2017 and prior, that was allowed. Starting 2018, those those deductions are going away for you guys. That's absolutely fabulous. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, As you can tell, I'm not bitter at all. But just to give you an example... Uh, we have to kind of, this is why everything's a case-by-case basis. So I ran a scenario the other day for somebody uh, that's in your classification. Their income was in the 230 range. Um, they had tons of unreimbursed business expenses, advertising, uh, you know, meals, uh, dues, uh, education. So we backed those out. We used kind of the, the 17 income to do an example of what our, what our 18 liability might be. Uh, 2017 total tax was 35000 Under the new rule, because uh, they have two kids, so they're getting $2,000 per kid for a child tax credit, their tax under the 2018 law is like 34000 so they actually saw a savings there and a benefit, you know? But you take that same scenario and you back out the kids, that person might see a slight increase in tax. So it's really a case-by-case scenario. So you're saying that the children are tax benefit. Would the person who typically has 2106 expenses have a reduction in tax refund? Because perhaps that may be one of the things that they bank on because they do have so many expenses in the future years. Because... You know, the challenge with anybody that is not reimbursed expenses is that this is real money that's going out post-tax. Right. So you lose that benefit of doing so. So the motivation to actually continue to build whatever industry they're in, uh, I think, has waned a bit. So you had some recommendations uh, in the past for this. What, What were those recommendations? I think once the filing actually starts happening under these new tax laws, um, and employees do see a big hit to their tax bill, they're going to go back to the employers, and I think employers will have to renegotiate that somewhat. Um, just if they want to keep the top quality talent, they're going to have to think about that. Um, the other thing, though, on the on the employee side, uh, you know, if, if you're actually tracking those marketing dollars and they're giving you a return, that return still might be better than the the outflow that you're actually still doing Um, so people will have to think about if there's another business that they can you know combine Uh, but you got to make sure that it's a legit business you're actually trying to make a profit Um, and that they're related because if they're not related you can't take say mortgage expenses and put that to a car sales business you know I mean (laughs) that they definitely have to be uh, in the same ballpark Definitely. Now I want to move on and shift gears here to common situations we see in mortgage finance. It's pretty commonly known that most millennials, most Gen Xers don't have the cash to put down a sizable down payment. It takes a lot of time, a lot of savings to get to that point. There are some that do have that ability, but the grand majority don't. But typically it's their parents or grandparents that have the ability to gift funds. So let's talk about gift funds. What is a gift in the eyes of the IRS from a federal viewpoint? 
So a gift is money leaving one estate and going to somebody else. So with the new tax laws in place, a married couple has basically a 20, we're going to round a little bit, but we're going to say a $20 million estate exemption. So what that means is they can give $20 million over their lifetime and not have to worry about any gift taxes. Uh, as of right now, mom and dad, they can each gift $14,000 each to an individual. So son wants to go buy a house, dad can give $14,000 to son, mom can give $14,000 to son. There's no tax consequences. Um, there's no filing that needs to be done. Once they go over that threshold, then the parent just needs to file a gift tax return. Um, and all that really is is tracking that deduction. So now, you know, we had a $20 million estate. Mom and dad both gave 14, you know, let's say 15000 So now we're going to reduce the estate by, by what, $30,000. So now it's going to be a $19 million. Nine hundred and seventy. So, do they have a tax liability? There's no tax liability. It's just finally a separate tax return, right? Because in essence, mom and dad already paid the tax on that on that thirty thousand. So, there's no tax consequences. So, the recipient of the tax, let's just say these funds are directly wired to escrow, and it never hits the individual's account. Right. The mortgage lender does not report anything to the IRS. We are just sourcing the funds of a gift coming from an eligible source. This could be mom, dad aunt, uncle, grandparents, brother, right. sister, right? When we do that, we have a standard gift letter that's completed. Correct. We track that the funds are coming from an eligible source, meaning it is their money to give. They're not borrowing the funds. Correct. And then we basically track the funds from their account to escrow. Right. Okay. There are some other instances, which I will discuss on a different uh, podcast, but when that happens... Does the recipient have to file anything showing that they received a gift? No. Okay. So this is, I think, a common misconception then. I think you're answering some questions. So let's just say that the total needed was $40,000. Mm-hmm. And rather than breaking that up into two parties, they gave a one-time gift of $40,000. Right. Anything in excess of that 14000 for the individual needs to report on a gift tax return. Right. And that just gets deducted from the lifetime maximum yep. for the gift, correct? Correct. Now, because they show that to the IRS, all they're doing is reducing from the collective maximum. Yep. They're not paying any taxes on it because they've already previously paid taxes on their earnings. Is correct. that correct? Yep. Okay. Now, that solves a lot of questions because I think it, it, it depends on the size of the estate. For sure. I mean, for the most part, majority of people that I know that have ever dealt with me in, in finance, especially in Kern County, has never exceeded uh, $20 million. Right. So that, that I think, would be a best case scenario for the most qualified person, and they probably wouldn't need me, right? because they're going to pay cash for I, that property. I was going to say, the majority of those people will have a sizable enough down payment to uh, to put down, yeah. Yeah, so, well, that that's dispelling some of the things that I think people kind of have an idea out there about that. And just to also put on that, too, so the tax laws will change at the end of 2025, um, so then if, if they don't stay the way they are, they'll jump back down to the old rates, which would be $10 million instead of $20 million. So still sizable enough. Yeah, I, I think that most people that are going to listen to this podcast are not going to worry about $10 million being gifted to them. Right. And if anything, 
that would be a great windfall. <laughs> and, and I'd be really happy for them because uh, at the end of the day, getting a gift for $10 million, I think, would change even a million dollars. Let's be honest. Right. You know, would, would, would change their life right. a bit. And so, our goal would be to help most of our clients, you know, get to that. That's yeah. you, you asked earlier kind of what's one of the differences. and That's, that's our goal. Absolutely. So I, I want to take a, a moment and just ask what the differences are between filing status. Some people I've seen come in with tax returns where a married couple and one comes in with one tax return and the other one comes in with one other tax return. And one will have one child on it. The other will have two other kids on it. Why does that happen? Because you were done wrong. Okay. So, so let me ask this. Does that open you up for any type of audit potential? I mean, potentially. Uh, for sure. I mean, you know, the IRS is getting smarter and smarter with all their computer technology now. Uh, you know, maybe 20 years ago or maybe even 10 years ago when the, the computer technology was not there, that might have been easier to get away with. But now, if you're married, you really have two options. You file a married filing jointly return, or you uh, file a married filing separately return. And so you can put the two, you know, one kid on each one, but those really should be your only two filing statuses. Uh, when you do married filing separately, you're going to lose out on a lot of tax credits and other deductions that you could take. Uh, what we see, and we'll run the scenario both ways for people, but... 98% of the time, you're better off filing a joint return. So what is the status of head of household? Head of household. Head of household is that you have a dependent and you provide more than 50% of their support. So that's living expenses, that's food, that's clothing. As long as you're doing that and you're single, you can claim head of household. So head of household is not for a married couple then? No. Okay, so no. it's a single person with dependents and or expenses. Correct. Wow. See, that was yeah. unclear to me. So right. thank you for bringing that to the forefront. That that actually could help some listeners because I think that they choose status basis based off of what they have had done in the past and don't ever think about it because sure. that that's really can be a, a loophole that really could be closed quickly, potentially expose them to potential right. tax audits right. or other things. Right. And especially if you have a husband and wife and they're both filing head of household uh, you know, more than likely they're going to have the same address on the tax return, which will be a red flag. Um, they didn't live apart, so they can't file head of household. Uh, I think there's a, I have to brush up on it, but I think there's a guideline. If you live apart for six months out of the year, you can elect one of those statuses. But if you're buying a house, more than likely you don't live apart from each other. Um, but in that case is what will happen is, you know, people will go to a mom and pop and they'll file head of household their refund will probably be bigger mm. overall, but they're opening themselves up to a whole can of worms that they don't want to experience. Now, this kind of got my my mind thinking about situations where somebody may be going through a divorce mm -hmm. and they are living separately. Mm -hmm. That would be a legitimate way of filing in that situation? I believe so, yeah. yeah what yeah. about a formation of a household? So let's just say, as an example, in 2017, they filed separately because they got married in 2017 could they do that because their earnings were taken as single or do they need to do a joint return they if they married in that tax yeah, return they need to do a joint return your status is based upon the last day of the year 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So that can change at any time. It's your status at the end of that tax filing year. Right. Okay. Well, that's good to know as well. One of the things that I've seen kind of more recently than not is that homeowners are wanting to invest in real estate. And in that thought process, they see these great ads really late at night <laughs> telling that you can buy a house and no money down. You can find somebody that has um, funds to give, if you will, and they can be your partner. How does that sit with you as a tax professional? Uh, uh, honestly, I've, I haven't seen somebody use somebody else's money that could come across like that, you know? Either they're they're getting a hard money loan from somebody that has it, but they're paying 8 10%, 12% interest on that money. Um, and then investing in real estate, I mean, you're going to need a sizable down payment to invest in a rental property or an investment property. Usually 20%, I believe, is the, is the number. Um, and then you also want to make sure that you have money in the bank. I mean, there's going to be times where there's major repairs, there's going to be vacancies, and you're going to have to cash for that property. Um, it's not just, let's go buy a house, it's renovated, and, you know, life's all good. There's, there's some risk involved, but as long as you go at it in a calculated way, it can, it can be very profitable. What if somebody is uh, going to flip that property, so they're not going to file, um, say, a Schedule E for ownership over time? Would they file a Schedule E if they just had gains? No, that would be a Schedule D. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in those situations, they would report their total expenses for acquisition, total expenses for selling, and then what their what their boot was, right? Correct. And then they're taxed on what? Uh, so if they sold that property within one year, it's going to be ordinary income. Um, if that property was held for more than a year, then it'll be at capital gain rates, which will vary depending on the person's overall income. So these things are somewhat sliding scale based off of the person's overall income anyways, right? Correct. So those tax brackets will really affect that number. Correct. So here's another question. I had this come through with somebody who was a um, W-2 commission-only employee, and I think that this is kind of confusing for a lot of people. So... When somebody gets a large commission, they note that their tax that's pulled is significantly higher. Right. And their net winds up being nearly 50% of what they're expecting. Why, why does that happen? For commissions and bonuses, the IRS withholds at a higher rate. So I think they are required to hold at 22% is what those come out at. At the end of the year, it all gets worked out and it's all taxed the same on your tax return. But just the withholding for that, those pays are, are different. So let's just say somebody at the end of the year receives a large bonus. Right. Let's just say it's a $10,000 bonus. They may be taxed at that higher rate because the withholdings are larger. Right. But when you're in the filing status, when you're going to file itself, you're saying that the numbers will balance and it'll adjust according to your tax Correct. Bracket. So just like what we talked about earlier, you know, the 77 to 165,000 and the 22, top end is 22%. That's the top end bracket. Um, you even, even though when you got that paycheck, you know, it was withheld at a higher rate, when you go file the tax return, you know, your top bracket's going to be that 22%. It's not going to be taxed any different than any other income that you receive. Now I want to move on to the Affordable Care Act. There are some changes that I've been told, and I can't confirm this, that's why I'm talking with the CPA today, <laughs> that could potentially affect 
um, employees that have the Affordable Care Act and maybe have gone to the exchange in the past right. um, for deductions that they take mandatory for their actual pay for um, health care insurance. What was the change? Is there anything different between 2017 and 2018 or 2018 to 2019 that's going to come into play? Yeah, so the, the changes are staying consistent through 2018. Starting in the 2019 tax year, uh, there's no longer going to be a penalty for not having health insurance. Uh, anxious to kind of see what that does to insurance premiums, the costs related to those, if there's any significant changes up or down when it comes to that. But uh, going forward, individuals will no longer be penalized for not having health insurance. Okay. So in that situation, you could potentially see people that are electing not to carry health insurance because the premiums are too high. For sure. But in those instances, they would need to see what available insurance is out there in case of, say, catastrophic loss or anything like that. Right. right? So yeah. it's just pretty much jumping without that uh, extra parachute, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that um, I was thinking And you about, have to think about it, too, though, is one bad accident can cost way more than what that insurance premium is. Sure. You know? And I know for small businesses, this is a major change, too. It creates for them a higher cost of doing business. For sure. So small businesses are always very vigilant on what their expenses are because... Just because you're an employee getting paid an hourly rate, that is not the total cost of carrying that employee. Right, right. And do you see this when you deal with small businesses on how they're managing their funds? Most definitely. Uh, you know, that's something that we work with with those businesses. We partner with other insurance brokers in town, and uh, we make sure that, one, we want to make sure the cash flow is there to do something like that. But the more reasonable benefits that the employer can offer to the employee the better retention they might have keeping those those solid employees around, you know? So we want to help strategize with the growth of that and making sure that when they are ready to bring on health insurance premium, you know, for their employees that it's, it's the right time. Now, shifting gears into tax planning after the year is finished. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, is that I've heard situations where they recommend someone contribute to potentially an IRA or some mm -hmm. other type of uh, tax vehicle right. if they're going to be subject to additional tax. Um, what What is that? And is that true or not? Yeah. So for there's income limitations and all this as well. But for an individual that's W-2'd, uh, they can contribute to a IRA. Um, they can do $6,000 per person, as long as there's earned income coming in for both individuals. Uh, when we look at the self-employed individual, that Schedule C that we were talking about earlier, there's uh, bigger contributing options for them. I mean, they can contribute up to fifty-two, $54,000 a year if they wanted to. Uh, if you wait till after the end of the year, those are really like our main tax planning strategies. So that's why we really encourage people to come see us, and, and we make the effort to reach out to people before the year's over. Generally speaking, what's the deadline to make those decisions for the prior tax year? Uh, a couple of them have the cutoff date of the first filing, which would be April 15th in most cases. Um, and there's also a couple contributions that you can make that will go to the extension date, which would be October 15th. Okay. Now, I have a question. This is more for underwriting because... Um, I see it occasionally. When you have an employee that is a server, 
as an example. And they receive a base rate of pay, mm -hmm. but they receive tips. Mm -hmm. And they also receive cash tips. Mm -hmm. How does that play out on a tax return? <sighs> Technically, the restaurant owner is supposed to account for those tax tips and put that on their W-2. And is it itemized separately in a yes, different box? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what about the cash that they receive? Uh, it should go to the employer, and employer should pay it out. So it's self-reporting then. It's self-reporting okay. on cash. Yeah. So <clears throat> I've seen this plenty of times too, where somebody may have a a good or a service they pay for. Let's just say you have a somebody comes and cleans your house once a week or mm -hmm. everything else, and that person is paid cash. Mm -hmm. What can the individual taxpayer do to Itemize that. Is it just an expense, or that's just an expense for the average uh, individual? You know, um, they're not conducting business out of their house, so it's not a business deduction. Um, um, yeah, but potentially, let's see the person receiving those funds. Should they be filing that in their own bookkeeping, or should they be receiving a ten ninety nine from that person? Uh, the individual can send out a ten ninety nine. As the individual not running a business, there's no point in doing that. But definitely, you know, that gardener, that house cleaner, whatever, they should be recording that income on their tax return. If not, they're not recording all their income, which is incorrect. Which could potentially, again, open you up for an audit. For sure. That's one of those bad A words I think that people don't like to hear. <laughs> right. And especially for people that deal a lot in cash, they have to think about if they get an audit, the first thing that's going to happen is IRS is going to request all their bank statements. Mm. They're going to request their bank statements, look at their deposits. And if those don't add up to what income is reported on the tax return, red flag right off the bat. No, those are those are big things. And I think the listeners of this, if they know somebody, which they probably do, <laughs> should be reporting as much income as they receive just to make sure that the information that we're provided with as mortgage lenders is accurate and right. we can act on those things. And, and if they're not reporting all their income, I mean, that's definitely going to affect what you can qualify for. Oh, absolutely. For. Absolutely. I'm, I'd like to say that I see tax returns where they make a substantial amount of gross receipts, but they write themselves into a poorhouse. Right. And it's very difficult because we have to reconcile how is it that you're managing all these other obligations because you have good credit. Right. So it's obviously not coming out of all these auto expenses that we see written off. Right. And then meals and entertainment, which are typically minimal. Right. Um, it just depends on the industry. Right. So it's hard to kind of um, explain this to a client. So, you know, there was a very uh, creative tax person that did this because they wrote off expenses that potentially show that you make no money. Right. And so in, in correlation with that is maybe instead of, you know, prepaying a bunch of expenses, maybe we look at assets that we can buy and then we can depreciate the entire exactly. asset, which then you can add that depreciation back into income. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And when that happens, we also are looking at expenses that are paid for by the business, but they should all come out of the bookkeeping of that business. Right. So that business account, for example, let's just say they pay their fuel, they pay their auto insurance, they pay their actual vehicle payment. It should be itemized um, and then put on as vehicle expenses on the tax return for Schedule C for us because then we don't have to hit that liability against their personal for go. qualifying purposes. Right. Most people maintain two vehicles if they do have one that's finance, one is for the business and one is for personal. But let's just say that you have a work truck and it's $700 a month. Mm -hmm. That's a large expense that you have to take into your personal income. But if it's truly a business vehicle, 
you're totally, you know, entitled to that deduction. Take it, you know, sure. put it put it in the correct location. Are there any things that you want to talk about that's related to, say, real estate for personal use? I'm not talking about investments. You know, I would say when when it comes to buying real estate is is really plan for it. Uh, you know, don't just get a whim and like find that you have to go buy a three, four hundred thousand dollar house. Think about it. Set yourself up financially. Talk to people like you ahead of time instead of the day that you want to go buy a house. Really plan for what's your payment going to be, what's the down payment needed, and try to live life like that for you know six, seven months and make sure it's, it's feasible. Sure. You know? I always tell people that suitability is the first thing we have to look at because after that loan is completed, I don't make those payments. Exactly. But if I do proper planning on the front end, it makes their life and their family life much more comfortable. Right. So um, suitability is one of the key points that we always look at. And when we look at the three C's of underwriting, capacity, collateral, and credit, um, capacity is a part of that calculation. They may qualify for more, but when you look at their bank statements and their spending habits, right. it may not match up. Right. You know, There needs to be an alignment of lifestyle too. Right. And in those situations, I spend some time actually counseling with the client to say, okay, what is your true budget? It's So you have the bad A word, which is audit, and you have the bad <laughs> B word, which is budget. And budget is difficult because we use um, that word loosely, but if you live by a budget, I think you'll have more opportunity to save. For sure. And if you are doing proper tax planning, you'll have a better outcome in the future yeah. because you're not making decisions that you thought that your friend did that got away with it, right. potentially illegally. Uh, that could potentially open you up for an audit. Right. So, very good. Darren, I appreciate your time, and uh, I look forward to how the feedback comes from this particular podcast. And we look to future podcasts where we're going to discuss businesses, right? Right. Investing in property and what proper planning for that looks like, especially if somebody starts to build, as, as, as I would say, a... Um, a dynasty, you know, where they own 30, 40 properties and what that looks like and perhaps what they may consider changing too as far as ownership. For sure. So thank you again. Well, thank you for having me. This was a great experience. And if they want to reach you, what's the best contact information? Uh, The best way, you can uh, send me an email at dwilliams at hdpcpa.com or you can call the office at uh, 661-725-3246. Thank you so much.